Welcome to the month of July. It's the month of grace. And, uh, you know, we're so glad that you're here. This is one of my favorite topics, uh, one that I've uh, written much about. And grace has many, uh, many applications, many definitions, many descriptors, if you will. Some people would say grace is unmerited favor. It's a good definition. Uh, grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's another great definition of grace. Grace, people would say, well, grace is a prayer. You say at mealtime. It's true. We use that term. Grace is being given an extra week to finish your, you know, term paper in high school or university. Some people would say grace is that 30-day period after the purchase when you can decide if you want to keep your thigh master or not. You know what I'm saying? That also is, is, is grace. Grace gets used in many ways, but at the end of the day, grace is that thing which is given to us, which we didn't work for, we didn't strive for, we were given it by somebody else's determination. And we've spoken a lot about grace at Desert Stream over the last uh, you know, decade or more. But one thing I'm pretty sure of is that people still wrestle with understanding grace. And, and one of the things I've, I've come to understand is that when you wrestle with it, when you struggle with uh, grace, and you struggle with giving it to others, it's because you don't understand what's been given to you in the first place. If you struggle in giving grace to other people, then it's in all likelihood you don't understand how grace has been given to you. Because if you had a revelation of the grace that's been given to you, you would not hold something against anyone else because you would be captured by what you have received from God. Amen? So today I want to look at grace again. And uh, uh, I want to just kind of over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how to live in grace. That's going to be our main focus. How do we live and walk out God's grace in our lives every single day. Well, as Barry said, uh, <laughs> first thing I want to point out today is that is we have to learn to live with grace in a meritocracy. We live in a meritocracy. Now, I'll explain that word in a minute, but basically it's this, that, you know, we live in a world where life and, and, and advancement is based upon your accomplishments. It's based upon the merit that you've earned in your accomplishments. And notice I didn't say it's, you don't get advanced in life based on your behavior because less and less today people seem to care very little about your behavior. They don't care how you got where you are. They just care that you got where you are, right? And so... That's probably uh, a message more for last month when we were talking about integrity, but the reality is, is that integrity doesn't seem to matter to people. They're only concerned about where you got to, what you've accomplished, what, what you know, uh, accolades have been given to this person, and whether you cheated, lied, stealed, or anything else to get there doesn't seem to matter as long as you've accomplished something. And that's one of the side problems of living in a meritocracy. But... Uh, in its narrowest sense, people say, what is a meritocracy? Well, it's a government uh, or the one holding power of the people that selected according to their merit. That's the narrowest definition of it. But in a more broad sense, a meritocracy is any setup or society that operates and rewards people based on accomplishment, education, and merit. 
So that's what it is. And so in the broad sense, we, we may be not structured per se as a government as a meritocracy because we actually have open elections. But the reality is, is as a society, we're still set up as a meritocracy. We, as a society, we tend to uh, advance people that we deem to have earned that advancement. In other words, uh, we are operating as a people, granting people uh, more uh, authority, more power, and more accolades based on what they have done. That's the world we live in. We operate on a society, in other words, based in this concept of earn and deserve, right? And uh, there are exceptions to this, of course. And when we run into these exceptions, they drive us crazy, right? You know, the person who got the job because their father owned the company, right? The person who got elected to office because they come from a politically successful family. The person who, you know, uh, got that promotion because their, their sister or their brother or whatever is also working for the company, et cetera, et cetera. The kid who got, you know, picked for the, the, the team just because they're related to the coach or whatever. I mean, we, when we run into these examples, they drive us crazy. We say, it's not right. Shouldn't happen. They don't deserve it, right? Isn't that what we say? They don't deserve it. And we think that things should come to us because we've earned it. And, and you know what? Uh, I got to admit, this is a hard one for me. You know, a few years ago, uh, Pastor Mark uh, Henshaw and myself, we were going into my favorite coffee establishment, uh, Starbucks, and uh, we were walking in there. And I saw a sign at the, at the cash as you're coming in, and I was instantly enraged. And it said, for the month of April only, get gold status with your first purchase. Yes, you heard me right. That's what it said. Gold status with your first purchase. I'd been a gold member for years. I got it the hard way. I spent a lot of money in overpriced coffee to get my gold status. Right? That's how you got yours, Barry, right? Exactly. And then I see on this board, gold status with your first purchase. I was enraged. I was, you know, I'm just sitting there fuming. It's just, it's driving me crazy. And I'm about to go up and just lay right into the manager about the fact that this is not fair. When Mark shows up, he comes in because we were meeting there for coffee. And I pointed to him, I said, look at that. Look at that. Isn't that disgusting? Isn't that aggravating? And he looks at me and goes, isn't that grace? Oh, really? Are you going to play the grace card right now when I'm having a moment? I am feeling completely justified in my indignation over this situation. And Mark goes, ever the nice guy, he says, isn't that just grace? I mean, he got his gold card the same way I did, spending lots of money on overpriced coffee. But it's still worth every penny, by the way. But, but he was able to just look at it and say, isn't that grace? He was, he was cool with it. And, uh, you know, immediately I was taken back to one of the most troubling stories in the entire Bible, found in Matthew chapter 20. All right, can I read it to you today? This is one of the most troubling stories in the entire Bible, one of the most frustrating stories in the, in the entire Bible, and probably the one that drives us crazy, if we're honest, more than any other story in the New Testament. All right, you ready for this? Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And he went out at about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and he did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out, and he found others standing idle, and he said to them, why have you been standing here all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. And he said, well, then go into my vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Verse 8. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to be hired to the first. And when those who came who were hired at about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat all day. But he answered one of them, and he said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish to do with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, hated that story. (laughs) Read that thing for years and just drove me nuts. I was raised a farm boy. I was raised in a firm meritocracy. My dad used to quote all the time, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so we'd go out and we'd work all day. And if we didn't work, then he'd say, you know, he'd, take, he'd, he'd grab all the meat off the, the platter in the beginning, put it on his plate. So you didn't work today. You don't get any of it. You know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, certainly, as you can see, I, I didn't starve. And I didn't starve because I worked. I learned how to work. And I worked and I worked and I worked. And I grew up with a strong work ethic. I know how to work. And guess what I taught my kids? I taught him how to work. And my dad used to say things to make, like this to me. If you learn how to work, son, he said, you'll always be on the top and not on the bottom. Okay. Right? And he used to say things like, you know, uh, the early bird catches the worm. The, you know, you get what you pay for. Are any of these things sounding familiar? I mean, on and on and on and on they go. We have, we have more expressions to talk about Uh, our meritocracy than you can possibly imagine. And my dad knew every one of them, and he drilled every one of them into me. And so when I got saved and I started reading the Bible and I got to Matthew 20, I just about, you know, threw the Bible across the room. I said, this is a terrible story. It was awful. So let's review the story here just to see why it was so crazy and awful to me. Notice that the day begins at 6 a.m. So the third hour is 9 a.m., just to clarify this. The sixth hour is noon, and the eleventh hour would have been about five o'clock in the afternoon before the twelfth hour, which was six in the evening. Does everybody follow that? Just so you're, so you're clear. So, truth number one: the workers were standing around waiting to be hired. Okay, this is the first thing you have to understand in this story: is that they didn't seek out the owner; the owner sought out them. Okay, I think that's the first principle we have to get in this story. He went out into the market. He found those who were standing around looking for employment or looking for uh, a task. And he did it early in the morning. He did it again at the third hour. He did it again at the sixth hour. He did it again at the 11th hour. I mean, this is is what the 
the landowner did. He pursued them. Has everybody got that so far? Okay. Truth number two, the workers hired in the early hour, the workers hired at the beginning of the day agreed to the denarius as a wage for the day. So in other words, uh, these men did not feel that being paid a denarius was an unfair wage. Whatever a denarius was, it was agreed upon in society that day as what would be worthy of a full day's work. So they had no problem. It says, in fact, he negotiated it with them for a denarius for the day. Right? Does everybody see that? Truth number three. Those hired at the third, sixth, and eleventh hour were hired by trust, but not by uh, a financial agreement. So the first people, it says he negotiated with them for a denarius a day. But afterwards, when he hired the people the other hours, he just said, and I will pay you what is right. That's all he said. He never told them what the amount would be. He just said, come work for me, go get in the vineyard, and I will pay you what is right. You notice that? Okay. Uh, Number four, the landowner was very intentional about what he paid each worker. He said to his steward, he said, line them up and line them up from those who were hired last to those who were hired first. He had a very intentional uh, plan about how he was going to disperse uh, the money. And so when he began to, to hand out the, the, the money to the workers, you can just imagine, you can just imagine that the guys who got hired at the beginning of the day when they saw the first money being given out were going to go like, if he's given a guy hired and only worked an hour a denarius, what are we going to get? Right? And then, but then as he went down the line and every person got a denarius, I'm sure their joy turned to absolute rage. And when he got to them who'd worked all day, they got their denarius as well. Truth number five, the anger of the workers who were hired first is understandable. It is. If you don't get why it's understandable, then you and I need to talk afterwards. I, I, I don't know. It's like, it, it, it's, it's understandable, okay? I mean, come on. I mean, it makes sense that they would be upset. Wouldn't you be upset? Put yourself in their shoes. If you got hired to do a job in the morning and you agreed on a certain price, but then somebody only came and worked an hour, got the same amount, wouldn't you be just, you, you know, you'd just be so mad. You'd be so mad. But here's the thing. Why are the, why are the workers so angry? Is it because a denarius was not a, a good wage for a full day's work? No. They agreed to come and work for a denarius because it was a good wage for a full day's work. They're not upset. They're not upset because of what they got. They're upset by what those at the end of the day got. Why? Because in their estimation, they didn't deserve it. Right? They didn't deserve it. See, you have to understand, they're not upset because they didn't get paid what they deserve. No, no, no. They're upset because those at the end of the day got paid what they did not deserve. All right? Truth number six. As unjust as the landowner's disbursement of wages appears, the bottom line is summed up in his comment when he says, is it not my money to do with as I please? Did you not agree to this? Are you upset with me because I'm good? Hmm, boy. And this, folks is the center of the message of grace. It's mercy is, is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. 
Grace is the other half, as we talked at Easter, of that gospel message. It's mercy and grace given to us. And, and grace is the part, I think, that maybe makes us the most angry. We have an easier time with someone maybe not being punished than we do with somebody getting a blessing that they didn't work for. Why? Because we're raised in a meritocracy. We're raised in this earned, deserved society which says that shouldn't happen to them if they didn't work for it. And, and you know, and understandably so. It would be kind of a weird world if we went around just giving people PhDs because they graduated from high school. Right? Uh, it, it, it devalues the PhD, right? You understand what I'm saying? Um, this is a side note, but one of the problems with trying to get through an economic problem like we're in today by just printing more money is that the more money you print, the less value of the money you have in circulation has. Think back to the analogy of giving a PhD to a high school student. Do you know what I'm saying? It devalues the currency in your monetary system. Hence, the result of that is a thing called inflation. If you want to learn more about it, just go online and start studying inflation, but that's what happens. And, and then things cost more. And, and the price of things goes up. Why? Because the value of, your, of what you purchase it with is going down because the market's flooded with it. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? All right. Another day we'll talk about economics. That's not for today. But anyway, when we're the ones receiving grace, eventually, once we get it, we're ecstatic because it's amazing to receive all of the gifts and the love and the blessings that we, had, we didn't work for from God. But the problem is, is that when it goes to somebody else that we deem somehow unworthy, it bothers us, right? We, 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 we celebrate it when it happens to us, but we have a hard time celebrating it when it happens to someone else. And that's the nature of being human. And that's the nature of being fallen and our in need of continuous regeneration of our soul man, right? And bringing it before the Lord. And as I said, I, I confess that this parable always bothered me because I could, out, I could relate to the outrage of those workers. You know, I came from a family of four kids and I was the third in the birth order, but I was the first male. And so I have a younger brother who's four years younger than me. And he also was an asthmatic. So there were things that he couldn't do, couldn't work in the hay because he, it, it would just send him to the hospital and different things like that, you know? And so guess what? I ended up doing all this work. He never had to do it. And we both got the same stuff from our parents. So very young, this parable probably would have drove me crazy. You know what I mean? Because I witnessed it all the time. It just seemed to me like, you know, I do all this work and my brother got treated the same way I did. It wasn't fair wasn't fair. How many have ever been raised in anything like that in your home? Come on, be honest here. Sure, you, you ran into or you had some kind of sibling rivalries and you looked at your siblings and you said, you know, why did they get this or why didn't I get that or whatever? Come on. Don't look at me like I'm the only carnal person in here having these kind of childhood memories. See, it bothered me when that kind of thing happened because it, it assaulted my sense of, of, of justice, of of, of of, of living in this meritocracy where I'd learned that you should only get what you, what you work for. And it drove me crazy when things violated that. And the fact that you or I read this parable and, and feel the deeply uh, unfair 
is understandable. We believe that people should only receive exactly what they've earned, whether it's a much-deserved wage for a job or whether it's, uh, you know, justice for something that they did wrong. And I don't think it's, it's necessarily wrong for us to think that way, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, because, well, it's, it's, it's a kingdom principle as well. Oh, really? You guys have heard it talked about in the Bible? It's called the principle of the harvest. You sow and you reap, right? And so, you know, we, we are, this principle is throughout the Bible as well. The principle of sowing and reaping, the principle of, of harvest, of seed time and harvest, of, of, you know, this principle being laced throughout Scripture. And so you look at it and you go, okay, well, no wonder I think this way because it's even in the Bible too, all right? But here's the revelation that I got. Here's the revelation. The law of the harvest, of sowing and reaping, works well with wheat and corn, barley, uh, time investment, talents, uh, labor, uh, even, even uh, money. But it doesn't work with relationships. And when the Bible talks about seed time harvest, it's never talking in the context of relationship. Because how many know relationships have to be built on something greater? The principle of the harvest is, is, is a truth. It's a law. But the principle of grace is a higher law. And the principle of seed time and harvest applies to all these things in the natural realm. But when it comes to human interpersonal relationship, we have to look to a higher law. We look to the law of grace. And we have to, because we can't treat relationships like we treat corn. You can't say, well, I, I put X number of hours into my relationship. Should I not get X number of hours back? I put this much love into my wife. Shouldn't I get exactly that much love back? I loved my kids and did this and this and this for them. Shouldn't I get that back? How many know relationships don't work that way? And what God's teaching us is that the, the, the law of harvest can't be applied to relationships. In relationship, we need something higher. We need the law of God's grace where we follow our Savior's example, who he sacrificed so that we could receive, where he gave himself so that love could be extended to more, where the more we give and the more we invest and the more we sow, the law of grace is that, is that you know, God multiplies it. God multiplies it over and over and over again. And if we look to it the same way we look to the law of the harvest, we're going to be frustrated because God's saying there's a higher law. There's the law of the kingdom of God. It's the law of grace. And it's rooted in love. See, love is unconditional. It's a direct fruit of the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. Probably every person here knows that verse by heart. And you've seen it held up between the uprights at a football game, right? The reality is that this is the most common verse quoted from the Bible. But it's talking about God's higher law, his law of unconditional love for every one of us. When we hear that God loves us so much that he sent his son to sacrifice for me, we, we, we're placed in a difficult position. We say to ourselves, why would God do that for me? 
Why would God give his son? Why would he sacrifice his life for my life? Why would God do that? Because we are so trained in that seed time and harvest that this kind of love is hard for us to experience and hard for us to, to understand. And we need, we need God to help lift the veil from our understanding so that we can grasp how high and how wide and how mighty is the love of God. And he shows that love to us and expresses that love to us through a thing called grace. God's grace is not given to us based on merit. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't work for it. You didn't qualify for it. God gave it to us. It's a byproduct of his love. And in giving grace to us, God is guilty of giving grace to some very undeserving people. Very undeserving people. As Brennan Manning would say, he's one of my favorite authors. He wrote the book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. If you've never read it, you need to read it. It's uh, one of the best books, I think, out there. Uh, and Brennan Manning, uh, his story is remarkable. He was a Catholic priest. He became a Jesuit, dedicated his life to ministering to the poor and the dispossessed in society. So he felt God call him to New Orleans where he was going to work uh, on the wharfs, ministering to those who couldn't go to church because they're out Wayne, you know what this is like, out of sea all the time, so he brought the gospel to them because they weren't going to come to the church to get the gospel. And so he would end up going where they were. He'd go to the bars, and he'd go to the restaurants, and he'd go wherever they were. And Brennan eventually became an alcoholic. And he, uh, he fell from, from his ministry, was stripped of everything, and found himself on the very bottom. And that's when he encountered God's grace. And this man who, who determined to serve God with all of his heart found himself at the bottom with nothing and God lifted him back up. And he has such a revelation of God's grace because he experienced it so deeply. And if you read his books, you'll be like, wow, he gets it. And one of the words Brennan Manning uses to describe God's grace is he says it's scandalous. Scandalous grace because it just, they just don't deserve it, but they receive it anyway. So love is unconditional. But I want to close out this morning by asking you this. Is, does that mean that grace is also completely unconditional? If love is unconditional, then grace must be unconditional. And something I've under, come to understand the last few weeks and before I answer that question, let me just deviate a little bit. I'm 58 years old, just in case you're wondering. I know I only look 48, but I'm 58. And uh, having a good wife keeps you looking young. That's how this happens. And, uh, but I'm 58. And, um, you know, I, I, it dawned on me the other day, I, I've already lived two years longer than my own dad. My, my own dad died at 56. But I'm 58, and, and uh, I feel great. And uh, there's days I wake up and I go, man, my shoulder feels 58 today <laughs> or, or whatever. But then I look in the mirror and go, come on, and then go on with your day. That's a sidetrack. <laughs> but I'm 58. And uh, one of the things I've learned uh, as a 58-year-old male is that we look at the world through our 58 years of experience, right? Everybody understand that? Whatever your age is, you got 
you've got that many years of, of information, that many years of reference. And I got to tell you that in my 58 years of life on this earth, I've never witnessed society more caustic, hateful, and divided than it is today. I'm not talking about necessarily globally. I'm just talking about Canada, North America. It saddens me, but it's true. And in our desire to seek justice, to ensure that people receive what they deserve, in our meritocracy, we've become more divided, more polarized, more critical, more judgmental than I think we've ever been in, in my memory. Is anybody else with me on that? The more we walk in judgment, the more we uh, cancel, the more we demand justice, the further we walk away from grace and the more alienated we become from the love that God has for us all. Now, listen, and, and as Barry would say, hear what I'm saying, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Don't try to read between the lines. Listen to what I'm actually saying. The causes, folks, today are endless. Uh, I'll just, I mean, we've heard all of these, I'm sure, in the last month. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, global warming, pandemic safety measures, anti-lockdown protests, Palestinian liberation, logging protests, indigenous rights, defund the police, trans rights, gun rights, abortion rights, language rights, etc., etc., etc. And I'm sure I missed many. Each one of these causes has its place in the public discourse. They, they, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to invalidate any of them by saying what I'm saying here this morning. They all have their place in the public discourse. Each one of these issues claims, claims justification for their actions and their outrage because of something that's happened to them. And they're asking for things to be changed. And they're filled with resentment and they're filled with anger and they're filled, and, and many times rightfully so. Many times not, but many times rightfully so. And each cause tends to seek to cancel anybody who disagrees with them or even wants to enter into discussion about it. Right? It's like you can't even have a conversation anymore about these issues. And this is a troublesome time that we live in. And every one of these responses, responses filled with a seeking things to be right in our meritocracy takes us further and further and further away from grace. Jesus demonstrated how grace impacts the public situation in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. You guys remember the story of the woman brought before Jesus who was caught in the very act of adultery. I always found it strange that she was brought, but her partner was not. I always thought it took two to commit adultery. Uh, not sure how that worked with only one, but she was brought forward before Jesus, caught, the Bible says, in the very act of adultery. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was silent at first, but then secondly, he began to write something in the sand. Many people say it was, you know, it was a list of sins that he was writing in the sand. I, I, no one knows because it doesn't tell us. But they've pressed him further for a response, knowing his gracious nature. You know what they were hoping for? They were hoping that Jesus would let her go and they would be able to go after him for not keeping the law. They were trying to catch him 
in his grace nature, violating the meritocracy of the law. That's what they were hoping for. And so they, they press him on the issue, and then Jesus utters those famous words that he spoke, and he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he continues to write in the sand again, perhaps maybe expanding his list of sins, I don't know. The crowd became silent, the Bible says, because they became pricked in their conscience. And I find it interesting, they began to leave from the oldest to the youngest. Why? Because the oldest have just had longer to become aware of how bad they are too, right? You notice that most of the protests are attended by the young because when you're young, you're idealistic. When you get older, you realize nobody's perfect, right? And so what ends up happening is that, you know, they, they, in this story, they, they left from the oldest to the youngest and until no one was left, and Jesus looked at her and he said, where are those who accuse you? Where, where has no one left to condemn you? And she said, no, no one. Then he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The woman had earned a stoning. She received grace instead. God's grace flies in the face of our earned deserve culture because we receive from God what we do not deserve. We do not deserve. Grace is given to unworthy people, to thieves, murderers, liars, cheaters, haters, lovers of money, addicts, abusers, gossips, adulterers, the profane and the proud. Grace is given to them all. Grace is given to you and I. Given to you and I. Because we're in that list. We're in that list. You might say, well, I've never done those things. You know, yeah. The Bible says if you even look at somebody with lust in your heart or hatred on your mind, you've committed the sin already because it's about what's in the heart. Like God's grace, love, I should say, grace is free, but here's what, I got back to that question. Is grace, though, is it unconditional? Here's something I've come to realize in the last few uh, weeks, months, maybe, uh, thanks to Bishop Marlin, uh, you know, in the States, and a conversation we had with him, but, and I started diving into the scriptures to look into this. When I read the scriptures, it seems to me that there is a condition on God's grace, though. It's free, but there's a condition on it. And you're like, <gasps> really? Let me read a couple of verses for you. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, exclamation mark. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do we need today? More grace. Who's he going to give it to? The humble. I need more grace. How am I going to get more grace from my God? 
by being humble. By humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. Humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. Receiving grace and a meritocracy does not require any labor or sacrifice on my behalf. It is given to me freely, but it's given to me because I'm able to humbly admit my need of it. That's my role. In humility, I have to come to God and say, I need your grace. And when I do, God says, here it is. I don't have to work for it, I don't have to labor for it, but I do need to recognize I need it. And that is where we're at today. Whenever we, we want to cancel somebody, we want to browbeat somebody, we want to go after somebody, we want to scream for justice, can we just remember the simple phrase, there but by the grace of God go I. You know, I realize if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would not be a nice person today. Some of you say, well, you're not a nice person today. <laughs> well, let me see. I, I would not be as nice as I am today. It's the grace of God that has made me into the person I am today. But you know what I've realized is that more I walk in his grace, the more I realize, God, I need more grace. I need more grace. Give me more grace, God. And God says back to me, I will. Just humble yourself before me and I'll give you more grace. God is calling us today to humble ourselves in his presence so that he can lift us up. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be remembered for my worst day. Do you? I don't want to be remembered for my worst day, do you? But cancel culture is about judging people by their worst day. That's the problem with it. It's about beating people down, about, about going after people because of what they did on their worst day. And I'm not saying that what they did wasn't heinous. I'm not, again, as, as, as I said earlier, please hear what I'm saying. Don't, don't try to read between the lines of what I'm not saying. But we all are in need of God's grace. We're all in need of God's grace. We need more grace. And our world needs more grace today. And we're only going to get it if we're willing to be humbled in the presence of God. You know, Barry reminded us last week, he said, and, and kind of twisted me around on it, because he talked about it from the perspective of what humility is rather than what the sin of pride is, which is where the quote originally came from, but it works both ways. But he reminded us that the sin of pride is not the sin of believing that I'm worth something. It's the sin of believing that I'm owed something. Do you understand the difference? The reality is that when it comes to our relationship with each other and with God, if we approach life as what's owed to me, we're in big trouble. Well, we can approach, you know, our investments and our our harvest and all the rest of it, and we, could, we can have fully expect that if I put seed in the ground, it's going to, I mean, our garden has just taken off this year. I mean, it's just amazing what's happening in our, in our backyard, you know, but I expected it. I put stuff in the ground. I did all these things, and pfft, there it is, but relationships don't work like that. If I walk around and all of my relationships, all I'm concerned about is what is owed to me, I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. It's not going to work. Marriages won't work. Your relationship with your kids won't work. 
your relationship with your coworkers won't work. They won't work if you approach them. What can I get out of this? What's in it for me? What do I deserve? No, we have to park that and come forward in humility and say, I'm, it's not about, the sin isn't about what, about believing I'm worth something, but it is the sin of believing I'm owed something. We're not owed anything. What we receive from God is given to us by his grace. Amen? There's a lot of stuff going on today, and I'm not going to address all of the different issues that are facing us as a society, and, and many of them need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed with a lot more than virtue signaling. They need to be addressed with concrete solutions and concrete answers and, and investment in people's lives. But can I just finish with the words of Martin Luther King, Jr.? And the man who did more to advance civil rights in America than any other person probably since Abe Lincoln. And listen to what he said. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Amen? Only love, folks. That's how we're going to do it. I want you to stand with me again this morning. How many are with me this morning and saying, God, I want more grace? I want more grace. If that's you in your heart today, then the only way we're going to get more grace is to come before our God with humility. God doesn't owe me anything. My wife doesn't owe me anything. I trust her to, in our relationship, provide things for me or give things to me like fidelity, love, trust. But not because I'm owed it, but because she desires to give it. And she expects the same from me. Not because she's owed it, but because, because I love her. And in that environment, we have success. In that environment of humility, posturing ourselves in relationship before each other, we'll have success. That's how we'll win the war that we find ourselves engaged in today as a society. So would you just place your hands, both of them like this, over your heart today. Just put your hands like that over your heart. Father, today we take our heart and we lay it at the altar of God. And we say, Father, there's so much that we're facing today, so many discourses in the, you know, in the public uh, opinion columns that, Lord, we could get called, caught in, in arguments one way or the other. And, Father, this is not how we win. Father, we win. Everybody wins, Father, when grace and the understanding of the posture of humility for more grace takes a hold of our hearts. And we must lead by example in the body of Christ. Father, it's easy for us, too, as Christians, to get caught up in the, the arguments and all the things that are going on and to demand our rights. But today, Father, we, we humble ourselves before you and we say, God, here's my heart. Here's my life. Give me more grace. So the grace so I can stand in the hour of need. Grace so I can face all of the opposition. Grace so I can continue to love even when people don't love me back. Grace so that I can be your ambassador of peace. Grace. I want more grace today. Father, give me your grace. And today, Father, I ask it in your name, in your matchless name. 